Well, tonight I wanted to talk about sort of a general overview, but the possibility of inner contentment, of living in peace, which is the potential that was promised to us by the Buddha from his own experience, and which has been actualized by many people over the centuries, and which we can discover for ourselves over and over and over in a moment-to-moment way. So the contentment, the way of living in this world as it is, the peace that the Buddha spoke of said once that there's no higher happiness than peace. It's not a kind of constant ecstasy, you know, or always being filled with joy, or the kind of bubbly happiness we might think of. I mean, that happens. That's great. It comes and goes like everything comes and goes. But the, the peace, the deep contentment, is a way of living as we are right now, in this world as it is, highly imperfect as it is. That what the Buddha holds out to us and what we can explore through the simplicity of this practice, among other ways, is we can wake up to living our lives in a different way, relating to ourselves, our experience, and the world from a different place, you might say. Living from a contentment, an ease, a harmony, with ourselves, with experience, with what's arising, that actually allows us to act more effectively, to be more present and more responsive. It's not at all the peace of dissociation, of needing to shut oneself away forever. I read a quotation recently from St. Augustine. said, the reason why humans behave as they do is because they are not living in their true home. I love that. That we, we are not living in our true home. And what this practice is about is helping us to rediscover. We're not creating something new. It's not that our true home or inner peace or what Chogyam Trungpa used to call our basic goodness, which I like that phrase a lot, our basic goodness, It's not that that's something non-present, that we somehow have to alter ourselves irrevocably to create, to somehow leave this world in order to get elsewhere. It's not so. But it's rather that through shifting the way we relate, the way we understand our experience, the way we understand ourselves, the way we understand the world, We live and move and trust in a different way. We come from a different place, from our basic goodness, our true home. It's not discoverable, as I said, by going elsewhere, but somewhat paradoxically, given that this world can be so troubling and painful and unsatisfying at times, our inner world, our outer world, what's going on in the world. But paradoxically, 
We can only rediscover, reconnect with our true home by sinking totally into whatever's presenting itself here and now in this moment, but with an open, non-judging quality of heart, of attention. By really coming alive in life, in this moment, the natural radiance of who we really are is again recognizable. It's hard to talk about, actually, true home. It's, it's not something tangible. It's other than thoughts. It's not our emotions. It's not our sensations, although that all can bring us into recognition. It's indescribable, yet when you are aware of, conscious of your basic goodness, all of our basic goodness, it's not you know, just mine or yours separate, it's so familiar, so simple, so obvious, like, oh yeah, right. You know those moments when you think, what's the problem? And why can't it always be like this? What was I so upset about before? And then, of course, the next moment, gone again. So familiar that I think sometimes, especially in a meditation retreat, um, we're looking for something a little more far out, a little more altered, a little more fantastic, a little more uh, definable, something you can talk about and take home and say, this really happened and I'm advancing on my spiritual path rather than, oh, I had a moment I was walking in the desert. This was me yesterday. Actually, I was walking quickly, hurrying to get to the phone because I had to answer a bunch of emails and check on my emails and blah, 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 and very important stuff. And suddenly I realized, oh, I'm missing the whole desert. Oh, it's just a sense of presence. So simple, but in that moment, there's no sense of dividedness of me or desert or I should do this or I was being a jerk before. Just this, just this moment, not even this moment, just beingness. We all experience that a lot. And then it's gone. If you try to say, wow, this is a moment of living in my true home of beingness, it's like gone, you know, it's gone. There's nothing to make a big deal out of. But it's helpful to know it, to recognize, and to know that it's totally trustworthy. So a lot of our practice here is a microcosm, you could say, of how many moments are there in a day. Each moment is an opportunity to again connect with fullness of presence with whatever's happening. And it doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter. We don't have to like it or dislike it. It doesn't matter what's happening. Whatever's arising can be in that moment the avenue to again be fully present, to recognize that, another friend of mine calls it, that place of no problem, where you just say, oh, my knee's killing me and my breath is no good and I'm falling asleep and there's just a moment where you stop fighting but you're still awake. Oh, place of no problem. Then it's gone again. So, living from our basic goodness in this world as it is. And it's hard. 
isn't it? I mean, this world is really painful. There's so much in our own particular lives. I talk with many, many people, and even people who you could say their lives are very fortunate. Everyone has their own suffering, a lot of difficulty. And in this country, in every place I've ever been, and everything I've ever read, there's, we don't have to say it, the injustice, the poverty, the economic imbalance, the greed, the confusion, the violence, the hatred. How can we really live with contentment and still stay open to this. And again, it's not easy. And it comes from beginning to understand that we're defining peace and contentment maybe in a slightly different way from our cultural norms. So a friend of mine said, I told her I was talking about inner contentment, And she said, well, anyone can have inner contentment when conditions are calm and peaceful. Think about it. That's not even true. Have you ever had a time when you went on vacation or you finally were doing something you'd really been looking forward to and you weren't happy, you know? Something happened or you had a fight with your partner or you, you get there and it's too hot or you come here and it's too cold or it just... All the conditions seem good, but you're still miserable. So even that can't rely on. But our tendency, the way I would say generally one tends to think about contentment, is is to, as she did, to first relate it to um, outer conditions. You know, we're contented if we can somehow control our environment, either the immediate environment. That's what's great about retreats, you know. It's a microcosm of your whole life. So often people find themselves in the first day or two, if that's your particular tendency to control the environment. If it's not, believe me, you have other tendencies. We all do. But some people can, you find themselves really trying to control the room, control the hall, what I'm going to wear, find my little schedule so that I can, you know, just walk in this way at this time in this place and then it'll really be okay, you know. Or we tend to controlling the environment is also a way of trying to block out the difficulty, the suffering, you know. So some people in living their life and looking for happiness or contentment is in a way of always going after pleasure and somehow avoiding, just saying it's too painful what's going on in this world. I don't want to know about it. Every now and then I'll talk to someone who says, I just never read the newspapers because it's too painful. You know, That's not what we're talking about either. And then one can take the flip side of that where we really are very involved in the suffering in the world in whatever arena it particularly calls us and working actively to help to affect a change but getting so over-identified that we really start to drown in despair, in anger, in frustration, because no one can fix it all. And from that place, uh, it's really a challenge to try to imagine how one could live with real peace and contentment while people are still going hungry, while children are still not being educated, you know, whatever the particular... Um, issue is that's closest to your heart. 
But we're talking something completely different. And that's one of the reasons I think sometimes Buddhism has gotten the reputation of being very quiescent, you know, very pulled back, that uh, we go off into caves, we go off into meditation retreats, completely removed from our lives in nice places, meditate on our own for 10 days, but that, that peace that is um, acquired by setting up those conditions doesn't have very much to do with the rest of life. It's just that we're the lucky few who can do that. But it takes a removal from the day-to-day suffering, and that Buddhism is really about that removal. And it's not that either. It's true that the conditions of a retreat give us the opportunity to investigate in a much clearer way than is possible when our minds are so busy and so cluttered as they are in our daily lives. Well, I'll speak for myself. Maybe the rest of you have very quiet, kind of, you just do one thing at a time and you have a lot of space in your lives. Maybe that's possible. It's not true in mine or anyone I know. I just read um, an advertisement from HBO I didn't quite get the technicalities of it, but the drift was that they had some new thing that you could get that would enable you on HBO to watch two different movies at once on two different TVs, as if this was a new thing that we should want. God forbid we should miss anything. So the Buddha's understanding, the inner contentment that we're talking about here, it's very different from escapism, from avoidance. It's much more radical than what we would normally think because the inner contentment is always available. It's who we are. It's our birthright, and it is nothing to do with conditions, either outer or inner. I mean, ultimately, contentment isn't dependent on our body feeling good or on being in a good mood or on having people love us, or in being able to affect wholesome change in where we work, in our families, in our communities. All of that is important to do, but that's not the basis for the peace of the Buddha. The shift, the shift that allows us to recognize our true home and live from peace is exactly a shift of attitude, not a shift of conditions. And oddly enough, the attitude shift isn't one of pulling away from conditions, but of opening into, sinking deeply into what's happening. The shift of attitude that allows us to see things as they are, rather than how we think they are. And this actually is huge. It's an immediacy of presence a wakeful intimacy that actually allows this shift of perception, the shift of attitude that opens us into a different way of being. Let me read you this poem because I love it, and it's a little bit long, but it, to me it really speaks to, first, our tendency to pull away from the painful, the unpleasant, our wanting to change things, and how the simple immediacy of presence, loving acceptance of what is without any dialogue about it, just as it is, 
opens us to a whole new way of being in that moment. It's by Mary Oliver. In Singapore, in the airport, a darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the women's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there, washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it. Kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings. Rivers are pleasant, and of course trees. A waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. She smiled, and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. But first, we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She is washing the tops of airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps, with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, but like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life, and I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen, but maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course it isn't, and neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth, the way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. So our human potential of connectedness, of harmony, of happiness, of being able to meet ourselves and the world as it is with love and compassion. This is so close, and it can seem so far in a moment when we're having difficulty with what's happening. But the shift is just one of attitude, of how we meet what's happening in that moment. And so, in the retreat here, what we're doing is having many moments where we can simply practice that wholehearted meeting and explore, as well, the times when we just can't do that, when we're suffering, when we're caught, when we're reactive, when we're frustrated, whether it's with ourselves, whether it's with others, with situation when we're longing for something, when we want things to be different. So we start out with ourselves, but it isn't a self-involved, separating practice, because as we explore our own reactivity, our own ability to open to truth, to love, to peace, that automatically takes us out into the whole world. We see that we are the world. This is how Thich Nhat Hanh describes the four foundations of mindfulness. 
Meditation is to be aware of what is going on in our bodies, our feelings, our minds, and the world. Each day, 40,000 children die of hunger. The former superpowers still have more than 50,000 nuclear warheads. Yet the sunrise is beautiful. And the rose that bloomed this morning along the wall is a miracle. Life is both dreadful and wonderful. To practice meditation is to be in touch with both of these aspects. And it's, it's often quite challenging. It can take a lot of courage to keep being in touch with both of these aspects. You might find you have a tendency more for one than the other. That it's really, no one really likes to be with difficult stuff. But some people really notice the difficult a lot and just don't quite see that there's a lot of pleasant, a lot of beauty. And then some people, it's more the reverse. They notice their happy states, they notice the beauty in the desert, and they just kind of try to shut off the difficult. And somehow it it can seem to be hard for us to say both can be true in alternation. If we're lucky, (laughs) it's in alternation. So beginning to both cultivate a recognition of this place of no problem, of our basic goodness, the sense of ease in the moment. I tried to describe a few moments. Again, it's nothing special. Right now, just right now, quit trying to do anything and just feel your body sitting there. Just notice it. Without any judgment, without any story, you're just sitting there. Now, is that so hard? Does it take a lot of time? Does it take any great skill? No, I hope the answer is no. It's not a big deal. All we're doing is remembering to do that, to appreciate the simplicity of being present. Yet to do that moment to moment is really hard. And I want to talk a little bit about Um, the way the Buddha tried to lay out the facts to help us understand why it's so hard. What I tend to notice is if I just sit, okay, I'm sitting here, fine. Pretty soon the mind goes off. Either it hits something painful or unpleasant, actually right now, my back's hurting a little bit, it's so cold, I didn't like that noise, I don't like my breath, I'm feeling sleepy and we're off in reactivity or we have a memory of something difficult, or we start to feel sad, and we have a difficult emotion, or we go off just distracted. The mind just doesn't really quite know how to settle into a steady focus. Again, it's sort of what I was saying about how busy our lives were, this sort of 30-second attention span that seems to be being cultivated in the media. And like it or not, It's so prevalent that it's easy to start to fall into it. And so even with the best intentions and things are relatively pleasant, there's no big problem, the mind is hopping off just to here to there. How many of your thoughts today have just seemed totally useless? You know, why am I thinking this? It's not even interesting. It's not going anywhere. And then when it comes up again, that same thought, you know, for the 50th time, (laughs) what is going on? Nothing. It's just the mind looking for distraction. 
It's not used to focusing. So, the Buddha talked a lot, though, and he gave four, you know, the Four Noble Truths. I'm just going to talk about them briefly as the four facts of how things are that are not recognizing, are not accepting things as they are, keeps us in this mode of reactivity to what's arising rather than being able to land with full presence in the moment. So, the first fact that when we meet a moment without reactivity, we can respond appropriately. We can respond from connectedness, from compassion. The first truth is that life, experience, everything that comes into our life, our body, our mind, other people, is basically unreliable. Unreliable in terms of being in constant change, in constant flux, that we never really know what's going to happen in the next moment. Even with all of our plans, as carefully planned as they are, we never really know what's going to happen. Jack has been planning to come here for a year, and the night before he gets really sick. We never know. Is he going to get better tomorrow? Is he going to get sicker? Who knows? All of us sitting here, who knows how we're going to feel tomorrow? One time here, in some, quite some years ago, in the middle of a talk, we had a big earthquake. You never really know what's going to happen in the next moment. That level of unreliability, we really mostly don't like to live with that too much. You know? and that's not something that makes us perk up your ears and say, yeah, great. You know, that really brings me a sense of peace, a sense of rest. <laughs> it's much more like, ah, why is she talking about that? I don't know. Okay, unreliable, sure, I know. We get sick, we die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad things are going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of what the Buddha is saying in this first truth. He's saying, this is how things are. It's not good or bad. It's not your fault. It's not someone else's fault. We're not talking about blame. We're just saying, this is how things are. Everything is constantly changing. There's no state of mind you can hold on to, no state of body. We're all going to have to deal with loss, with things not being the way we want them to be, with having to be with things we'd rather not be with, and people. You know, watching my parents getting old and getting sick, and watching how my mind thinks, no, not them. And then I think, hey, my dad's 82. What do you expect? It's going to happen. But still, there's the resistance, you know. And what's our relationship to this? Without really paying attention, our kind of knee-jerk, habitual relationship is just what keeps us suffering. The first most obvious, but one we can get caught in, is just outright denial. You know, I'm not sick. You're not suffering. Just pull yourself together and get over it. You know, you know how it is when you're really grief-stricken, or you've been sick a long time, or something really hard's happening in your family. After a while, your friends kind of only seem to want to hear so much. And then you kind of get the feeling, okay, you know, better talk about something else. I'm going to spoil the luncheon, you know. Or you don't want to talk about it on vacation because it'll bring people down. As if we could somehow hold ourselves separate. 
I read this article from the Associated Press. To my mind, this is the ultimate sense of trying to control and deny. It's uh, the mayor of a small southern city in Spain has banned death. (laughs) He feels the local cemetery is too crowded for a soul to get decent eternal rest. So the 4,000 residents of this village in the Granada province should remain alive while municipal officials shop for land to build a new graveyard. (laughs) Mayor Jose Rubio, 58, issued an edict last week ordering people, quotation marks, to take utmost care of their health so they do not die until town hall takes the necessary steps to acquire land suitable for our deceased to rest in glory. (laughs) Now maybe we don't go that far. But there's something in it, you know, that I could really relate to. You know, when I have something I really want to do and say, okay, I'll get sick later, you know, but I can't get sick this month, you know. Or if I'm worried about my parents, okay, in November it's okay if something happens because then I can go home, but not in August because I have to be in Europe, you know. There's an element of denial. Once I was uh, in the hospital quite some years ago, and I'd been there a while, and if you've been in the hospital and you're getting intravenous, you know, sometimes after a while the veins kind of collapse and it gets harder to put it in, the intravenous thing. And so the nurse this particular morning was having problems. She tried it a few times. And, of course, we're both stressed by that time. I mean, she was really stressed, more than me, because she hated to cause pain, you know. So she ran out in the corridor and collared the first doctor who was walking by. And I thought, man, I'm really in trouble now because the nurses are the ones who put in the intravenous, you know, not the doctors. So he came in and he was, you know, jabbing away. And I, I wasn't at my most balanced and little tears were coming down. I didn't say much, but little tears. And he looks at me and says, what's the matter? This doesn't hurt. <laughs> and really, you know, I could understand that. It, it's too painful for him to let it in, you know, that he was hurting. Even though his intention was, was wholesome, you know, he wasn't trying to hurt me, he was trying to help me. But it's so hard for us to be present and open, fully intimate with the experience of the unpleasant, you know. But that, holding ourselves away, whether it's through denial or whether it's, it's through um, trying to change it, whether it's true through just completely going after pleasure, that's what keeps us confused and suffering. So what the Buddha is saying is uh, not that we have to live with a passive resignation. Okay, whatever bad happens, you know, I'm a doormat. There's nothing I can do to change things. Not at all. But simply in the moment, if something difficult, painful, loss is happening, that it's happening. That's all. To be able to acknowledge with an open heart, yes, this is happening. From that, we might be able to respond with a lot more wisdom, with a lot more appropriateness. So seeing the constant change, the flux, it's actually a seeing of wisdom that brings not the kind of uh, despair, oh my God, there's nowhere to rest, everything's changing, What it really brings is peace. Because if I know this beautiful thing is going to change, I actually can appreciate it more fully rather than 
worrying, will it change? I know it'll change, so I can be present. When something's difficult's happening, rather than blaming myself, rather than blaming others, rather than taking it really personally, it's just, okay, this is what's happening. It's a fact of life. Can I be with the bare experience rather than all my reactions? And how you notice that's one of the ways we don't quite see change clearly, that we tend sometimes to take it personally. In myself, I feel like it's a, like an obsessive self-referencing about everything. For example, the weather here in the desert. I love doing retreats here because the desert is such a teacher in this regard. You never know. I've been here 15 or 16 springs now. You never know how the weather's going to be. But every time, 16 years, I never pack enough warm clothes. I always remember the first year I came when it was really warm and we were sunning ourselves every... 16 years, you know, I don't get it. And Franz will be saying to me now, what's the matter with you? Pack more warm clothes, you know. Two years ago, I had to go buy a down coat because I was in a thrift store here because it was freezing. But it's constantly changing. You can't come here and really settle into this is how the weather's going to be. Two days ago, we got here Tuesday night. It was really pristine. It'll change again, too. I'm not trying to rub it in. But it was warm. It was beautiful. The wind wasn't blowing. And even we could say, oh, we know the wind's going to start blowing sometime. We didn't really mean it. And when the wind started blowing, I could see my mind going, oh, wouldn't you know it? Just when I come to the desert, the wind starts to blow. (laughs) That's what I mean about this obsessive self-referencing. Constant change, how does it affect me? You know, That's all I care about. How does it affect me? That's the source of the suffering. Take the me out of it. It's just what it is. There's no real problem. And I can walk out instead of pretending it's warm because I want it to be. I can walk out, I can notice it's cold, I can put on the appropriate clothes. It took me till this afternoon to put on this jacket. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, it really is cold and it's staying cold, put on the jacket. Now, just to be really present. It's out of our control. So how much of our suffering is about trying to control what's uncontrollable? I came here to sit with Jack, and he's sick. That's just a fact. What does the mind do with that? That's the suffering, if the mind does something with it. And so the second fact that the Buddha talked about, that the cause, really the cause, of our discontent, of our dissatisfaction, of our dis-ease in this world, is not that difficult stuff happens, because it's gonna, but it's the reactivity of our heart and mind to both the difficult and the beautiful, that we hold on to what we like. We want it to stay, knowing it can't. That we push away, that we hate, that we react, that we blame ourselves, that we blame each other, that we try to control all the permutations. And you have 10 days to explore those permutations. That's an important part of the practice. It really is. How do we react to the simple fact of what's arising How do our reactions cause us suffering in this moment? So often, we're so um, entranced, really, by our reactions, by the cycling stories that we tell from our reactions, that we aren't even so aware of what it is that actually started off that reaction in the first place. We're long gone 
into reaction on top of reaction on top of reaction. For example, this is a very simple thing, for, but pleasant. You could be sitting in the hall, getting a little bored with what's going on, and some pleasant smell comes by. You don't even really consciously recognize it. From that pleasant smell, you kind of get a nice feeling. There's a thought, ah, I wonder what's for lunch. And then you go back to that wonderful meal that you had two weeks ago with so-and-so, and maybe you can do it again. And what are you doing sitting here because you could be having that wonderful meal with so-and-so, and actually it's freezing here, it's freezing here. What? And you're completely gone wanting and aversion and spacing out, you never even noticed just a simple nice smell coming through. And you're in worlds of discontent. Because wanting the pleasant that isn't here is also discontent. It keeps us from landing in our true home. So just to connect with what is, recognizing it, the simplicity of a moment's experience for what is, that's the place where our peace can begin. This is from the great Buddhist teacher, Phil Jackson. His book's actually quite good. I don't know if you've read it, Sacred Hoops, about his, his time training the bulls. It's really quite good. He said, in Zen it said that the gap between accepting things the way they are and wishing them to be otherwise is the tenth of an inch of difference between heaven and hell. If we can accept whatever hand we've been dealt, no matter how unwelcome, the way to proceed eventually becomes clear. This is what is meant by right action, the capacity to observe what's happening and act appropriately without being distracted by our self-centered thoughts. If we rage and resist, Our angry, fearful minds have trouble quieting down sufficiently to allow us to act in the most beneficial way for ourselves and for others. That's really it in a nutshell. Learning how to connect with the simplicity of our experience using just the sensations of breath for the beginning. How much more simple could we get? And we'll move to sensations in the body and include our emotions and our thoughts and sounds and senses and everything that's happening in our experience. Everything. Learning how to quiet the mind enough to connect with the simplicity of experience and learn how to tell the difference between what's actually happening and all our interpretations and reactions. And from that place, True compassion and peace and right action is really possible. So the end of suffering that the Buddha speaks of, that we can experience in moments, it's not by separating ourselves from life, it's not by achieving some very high state of concentration or an altered state. I mean, those are nice. Those are momentary, you could call worldly pleasure. But it's not the end of suffering the Buddha is talking about. The end of suffering is really when we have a moment that we can experience what's happening, internal, external, whatever it is, fully, openly, 
without resistance, without clinging, without this self-referencing, what does it mean to me? Simple, total presence, here, now, this moment, that's all, just this moment. Free of clinging and self-referencing. And in that moment, we see how much energy in our lives goes into resistance. How much energy is caught up in wanting things to be different, in holding on to or chasing after the pleasant, in trying to arrange things so we don't experience what we don't like. It's huge. And we recognize that when there's a moment when none of that is present. And there's this vivid, wakeful totality of presence, just what is, that lets us begin to trust that maybe we really are other than this mass of emotions and reactions and thoughts and body sensations. I mean, if I'm really my emotions and my thoughts, that's a really depressing thought. (laughs) You know? If we pay attention, we see how many emotions and thoughts have gone through today, how can we really think we're any of them? It always amazes me that I keep thinking I'm like this emotion when I know it wasn't here five minutes ago and it's going to be gone in another half hour. But this sense of presence, of not being so self-absorbed, is not like a grim, disconnected kind of life. You know, that's another, I feel like it's another misconception of uh, a mind and heart that's free from clinging, of uh, the peace of the Buddha, so to speak, that it's somehow ethereal, floating along, disconnected, dispassionate, meaning, you know, who cares, indifferent. But there's the people that I've read about or the people I meet, I can't say someone's completely awakened. I don't know that. But you know when you're with someone who seems more free, more alive, less self-obsessed, that is compassionate, that is really able to roll with what's happening in life without getting so thrown by it. The people like that that I know or that I read about, they're actually some of the most joyful, alive people I've ever met. I saw this one photograph. Oh, I don't know if I have it. Somewhere here. Oh, yeah. You probably can't see it, but it's the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And they were at a conference in uh, Virginia, University of Virginia, I think, a couple of years ago for uh, Nobel Peace laureates. And seven or eight of the Nobel Peace laureates had been invited to this conference to try and jolt the students at this college into some sense of caring about the world outside of themselves, basically. They said that was the point of the conference. But what I love is is I think of the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu as two men who have probably come face to face with more suffering, you know, in their respective lives, all the people that they that they um, work with or listen to in South Africa or in the Tibetan refugees. I just can hear one or two stories and it's unbearable suffering. And these guys, it's their whole lives. They are, in this photo, they're just clowning around, 
completely laughing and joking. The Dalai Lama's behind Archbishop Tutu and he's trying to pull off his cap, you know, like little kids. And Archbishop Tutu's holding it on and they're both just cracking up. And this is obviously in front of everybody, photo opportunity, you know, that's how they're acting. Just innocent and joyful. Not this kind of weighed down with the troubles of the world. So when we begin to explore opening here and now, meeting what's happening rather than avoiding it, it might seem counterintuitive. I don't want to dive into this. This is what's causing me problems. I want to get away from it. But the actual meeting face-to-face with bare attention, that's what brings us into the real trust into our true home, into the ability to meet ourselves in life with much greater compassion and kindness and connectedness and to really trust that that's who we are and that it's possible in this confused and painful world to live from a truer, more connected place that lets us actually be more present for one another, more present for ourselves. Our practice here, it may not seem quite like it's connecting to that, especially in the beginning, feeling your knee pain, feeling your shoulder tension, watching your breath, falling asleep, hating it. You know, don't give me that. What's that got to do with living in your true home and compassion? It just is torture. But the way our mind responds to the neck pain is the way we're going to respond to something bigger in the world. So the only other concept I want to mention is that of bare attention. In other words, use that neck pain, use the coldness of the wind to begin to see how to bring our attention into the actual experience and learn to tell the difference between that and our ideas and interpretations. Sometimes we don't even know that we're mistaking our interpretation for the actual experience. Pain in the body is a good one. So your knee starts to hurt. Do you just notice dullness or throbbing or sharpness? Do you even have a moment of that or is it, oh my God, here it goes. This is sick. I'm going to have to have arthroscopic surgery. These guys are nuts. They're all sitting in chairs. What happened to them? I bet they really damaged themselves somewhere down the line. And they're telling us. They're not telling us. They're letting us sit here and do it. They're sick. You know, don't even get to, oh, it's throbbing. It's actually not even that bad. You know, when you look at it, it isn't even hurting yet. But you're out of here. Or the tension in the neck. Is it just tightness? Or is it a sign of your high-stress, type-A personality, of the fact that you're out of control in your life, of the fact that you're driven, that you've never been able to express love to anybody, that you're doing way too much, you know, that you yelled at your kids before you came, that everything's wrong in life, that this whole society, this whole culture is completely messed up. And in fact, I've got that guy I met who moved to Ireland and has finally found peace. That's what I need to do. Goes pretty far pretty quickly, doesn't it? Can you even get out of that to simple throbbing without it meaning anything about who you are as a person? Sometimes we can, but sometimes we really can't. 
And in fact, we get angry at someone who tells us that it's just throbbing. You know, don't tell me that. I know. So this is our practice. Just feel a bare sensation of breath without it meaning anything. It's just a sensation. It's our avenue in that moment to awareness. Whether the sensation is beautiful or ugly or tight or loose or you can't feel it or it's whatever, it doesn't matter. In that sensation, the feeling of it, we're in awareness. The sensation comes and goes, but awareness is here no matter what's happening. And sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, coldness of the wind, whatever's happening, is simply our key to open into awareness again. And in that simplicity of awareness is where we re-recognize and learn to trust what St. Augustine called our true home. So, I urge you to try to be non-judgmental <laughs> about whatever's going on. But just recognize that every moment's an opportunity to dwell in peace, in contentment, in really participatory intimacy with life. This moment is all the life we've got. Let's be really here with it. So thank you. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.